If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, I'm Dave Musgrove, and this is the fourth History Extra podcast for May 2012. Thank you for listening. Coming up in this week's episode, we have... Clearly, I think he found that, um, and he decided pretty quickly, that, that he couldn't serve the Archbishopric and, and, and God and Henry at the same time. That was John Guy talking about Thomas Beckett. Because the funny thing is, if you don't have anything to drink, you don't make much saliva. And when you don't have any saliva, you don't eat anything. Those were the words of a Second World War veteran. This podcast is brought to you from the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. There are details of our latest issue and subscription deals on our website, which is historyextra.com. We're also available digitally. You can purchase our Kindle edition direct from the Amazon website, and our iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. To find out more, please visit historyextra.com dot com forward slash ipad for that we're also on facebook.com slash history extra and twitter.com slash history extra john guy best known as a historian of tudor england has turned his attention in his latest book to one of the most intriguing figures of the medieval period thomas beckett was a middle-class merchant's son who rose to become archbishop of canterbury before being murdered in 1170 at the behest some argue of king henry ii he then went on to become a martyr of great renown. BBC History Magazine's Rob Attar caught up with John recently to find out what new light he had shed on Beckett, his relationship with the King and his untimely death. What new perspectives do you think you can bring to the story of Beckett with uh, your experience as a Tudor historian? I think from the outset I was interested in his reading because clearly the key thing for him is what was it that was driving him? You know, what was his interior world like? What was going on in his head? And, and I was very cautious also that I, I wasn't simply going to try and map on Tudor controversies to the, to the 12th century. But, but right from the beginning, it, it was fascinating to discover that not only did he have books, but he actually had 70 books, which is rather a lot for the 12th century. Uh, and in fact, when he was killed, his books, his, what was left of his property after it had been um, looted by the knights and their, four knights and their accomplices, uh, what was left of his property became um, the property of the Christchurch monks at Canterbury. And in the early 14th century, uh, an inventory, a catalogue was made of his books. So we can see what they are. Uh, and not only that, I was able to trace six or seven of the exact books that he had owned. Uh, you, you the actual, the actual books, books yeah. yes, with his um, name written in the front in the, in the early 14th century by Prior Eastry. This is one of the books that belonged to Thomas the Martyr, rubbed out, of course, because Henry VIII in 1538 said that the, the name of Thomas Beckett should be no more used and the shrine was dismantled, and so the, the names were, were rubbed out, but you can still see with ultraviolet light. Of course, if you look at the whole package and he had things for example like St Ambrose on the duty of ministers which is a reworking in a Christian frame of, of Cicero's um, book on duties De Ficis uh, and um, he also had um, Seneca's moral essays including De Clementia which of course was written under the Emperor Nero as a guide to how an honest citizen should behave under tyranny. It's actually quite clear that the sort of package which comes with um, this section of his library is the package that comes when somebody is exploring how to deal with a sovereign power that they believe has degenerated into a tyranny. Now, if you correlate Beckett's reading against his letters, you in fact find in the letters this rhetoric of Henry II becoming a tyrant. 
and behaving, in fact, in the way that King Stephen had behaved uh, against the church and, 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 and so on during, during, during the anarchy. And so it enables you to create a, a vision, uh, or at least recreate or reimagine his vision of, of the world. And in fact, you can say that Henry II had a, a vision of the world which involved a centralised state and he was able to control the church, ring fence by the coast and exclude um, appeals to Rome and uh, limit the encroachments of canon law. Uh, on, on, on the secular law. You can see these two guys had conflicting visions of the world and that transcends the struggle to be something more than just simply a clash of personalities. It's also intriguing to me as a Tudor historian that Thomas More was reading the same books. So there, are there quite a lot of parallels between Thomas there More are, well, and there, I, I tried not... When I was researching the book... Uh, and when I was writing it, I was trying not to draw too much on, on that. In fact, I, a couple of places where I do re refer to these parallels, but I'm trying not consciously not to over-egg those parallels because I don't want what I know about the Tudors and a, a later Henry to be driving what I'm thinking about Beckett and you know, Henry, Henry, the, Henry the Second in the, in the 12th, 12th century. But sure, there are parallels that are there. Um, what's really clever about Henry II is how he manages also to get things airbrushed out of history. Uh, until I wrote this book, I had never... I, at Cambridge, I'd always been a medievalist, primarily as a student. I read virtually all medieval history in only one Tudor history course. Only later that I became a, a, a Tudor historian. But what you know, I never knew and what has almost got airbrushed out of history is that after the Beckett controversy, when Henry had to, in fact, do penance at, uh, in the cathedral at Vranches uh, and had to be reconciled to the church, he actually was forced to take an oath, to swear an oath uh, of obedience to the Pope on behalf of himself and the, and, and, and the monarchy, but he got that airbrushed out of history. So, so from doing this research, have you found you've shed quite a lot of new light on Beckett and Henry? Most British scholars believe that Beckett was something of a hypocrite because he'd been Chancellor before mm. and he'd done what, what Henry wanted, uh, that um, he was something of a pretender, he was ill-qualified to be our, our Archbishop, he was therefore, because of his, if you like, his personality defects, uh, he was keen to outbishop the bishops, he was a bit of an actor saint, mm. he was uh, essentially a pretender. I think that's actually very harsh. Uh, and I think a lot of that um, is owed to uh, the sort of anti-Beckett propaganda that came out at the time of Henry VIII's break with Rome and then in the Elizabethan period with the Protestant Reformation, uh, when there was a sort of great flood of, um, of, of um, campaigns to yeah. rubbish or you know, diminish the importance of Beckett. But of course, also in the 1530s, at the time of Henry VIII's break, break with Rome, Beckett got a rough deal from the papacy as well. Uh, because, of course, by then their view of what what martyrdom should involve had, had, had shifted a bit. And, and Beckett, of course, was accused of dying simply uh, to protect um, the privileges and assets of the cathedral and, and the Church of Canterbury. Uh, and, in fact, not to die for a significant point of faith. And that this was inferior. And in fact, actually, Pope Paul III, at the time of the executions of Moore and Fisher, says, well, Fisher is a, uh, Fisher is a proper martyr, yeah. not like Beckett, who basically threw his life away in a sort of petty squabble over property and, and assets and a, a dispute about the, you know, who was going to crown um, the young um, heir to the throne, the young Prince Henry, as, um, who, whom Henry had crowned in his own lifetime. Do you think Beckett was put in an impossible position by the conflicting demands of the Pope and Henry? Well, of course, um, and it's also said of him that he politicised the, 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 the archbishopric. I mean, I think you've got to go back a stage, actually, and say, was Beckett Beckett exactly as Chancellor Henry's men and doing Henry's business? And that there was this sudden sort of transformation in which he suddenly became a new man. The idea of the, the early biographers of Beckett all said, oh, he became a new man and it was a Damascene conversion like St Paul on the road to Damascus. So you've got to take a step back from that. Uh, because if you, if you look at uh, the, the, the person who knew Beckett best in his own lifetime and had been um, a fellow clerk with him in Archbishop Theobald's household, Archbishop Theobald being the previous Archbishop to, 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 to Beckett. And John of Salisbury, if you, if you, if you read um, something like his um, uh, 
there's a long entheticus, which is a sort of abstract of wise men's doctrine, and which he never showed to anybody, as far as we know. It was a sort of private um, piece of writing. But there's also a dedication to Beckett, a first dedication of 306 lines in the copy of John of Salisbury's Polycraticus, which he sent to mm. Beckett in 1159 by courier when Beckett was uh, at the gates of Toulouse in the, in the Toulouse campaign. I mean, John of Salisbury um, characterises Beckett as a divided consciousness under uh, under Henry as Chancellor, that in fact, um, I mean, he goes as far as to say that Beckett's career as Chancellor is something of a pious fraud, because he has to pretend to essentially be one of the untamed beasts of the court and then go along with Henry and be Henry's man, whereas in fact he's actually trying to to, to turn things round, you know, for the, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the better. There's a little bit of wishful thinking in that, but there's an element also in which Beckett is not the sort of... Um, cipher or basically um, royal slave that um, you know he's often appeared to be in sort of film and television and I mean he's certainly he's certainly not um, like um, Henry in sexual matters I mean he's certainly someone for example who uh, as far as we can tell whatever he'd been like as a student in Paris uh, is, is not engaged in sexual relationships. I mean, he seems to be chaste while he's Chancellor. And I mean, he's not even... I mean, as, as, as uh, once he becomes an Archdeacon of Canterbury, you know, then, which is, of course, not a full priest. The deacon is not a full priest. It's sort of halfway there. Um, uh, I mean, even I mean, to be chaste even as a deacon is quite remarkable in, in the 12th century. Um, so I think you have to step back a bit once Beckett had become Archbishop, clearly I think he found that, um, and he decided pretty quickly, that, that he couldn't serve the Archbishopric and, and, and God and Henry at the same time. And indeed he didn't need to continue to be Chancellor and he resigns within, what, four or five months of being made Archbishop. Mm. He just resigns to Chancellor. It was quite a bold thing to do in the, 16th, in the 12th century. I mean, Thomas More, it was quite a bold thing for Thomas More to do, to resign the Chancellorship. Yeah. You didn't just resign. Uh, you couldn't just resign. Uh, you know, Machiavelli understood this very well when he said that essentially if you go and serve princes you have to do exactly what they say otherwise you tend to get your head chopped off. You know, you can't afford to be a conscientious object or anything like that. Uh, and I think that was Beckett's main offence actually. I mean, there were many things that Beckett was accused of by Henry but I think the, the, the biggest offence that he had was that he actually resigned without first consulting Henry. Henry, of course, at the time was in Normandy but on the continent. And, uh, and Beckett was, uh, what was, it? was, it was in England. And I think it was a, a great shock, actually, to, to Henry that Beckett had resigned. So do you think Beckett was a more consistent character than some of his biographers would claim, that he didn't necessarily have this big change, that he was always a fairly similar man? I certainly agree. And actually, I'm not the first person to say that he was a divided consciousness before he became Archbishop. David Knowles had written a quite short biography in the 1970s uh, and, you know, he'd said pretty much the same, and I think that this is right. I think the difference with my book is that I show you where in John of Salisbury this was said at the time. Uh, you can also triangulate this a bit further, because if you bring in, there's another courtier bishop, a Norman courtier bishop, who was very influential in Normandy and advised Henry, um, even before Henry became uh, King of England, uh, when he was still Count of Anjou and Duke of Normandy, and uh, this is Arnulf of Lysia, Arnulf of Bishop of Lysia. Yeah. And Arnold says, he actually, he writes, um, he writes to Beckett as things start to go wrong. Uh, and he says, well, look, you know, um, you can, you know, why are you really surprised? I mean, look at the, you know, Henry is a king who stands so much on his dignity, on his honour. Who are you? You're just a middle-class Londoner, you know, who's, you know, hit the jackpot and become Chancellor. And, um, you know, the gulf, the social gulf between you is such a great, so great that do you really suppose that, you know, and Henry's so willful and he's so volcanic and, you know, he's so clear uh, uh, about, his, about, about his aims and so fixed of purpose that you really, you know, how did you ever really think that you could actually um, sort of ride this very, very difficult horse? Of course, Beckett says of Henry that he's a tester of character and, um, you know, you have to basically stand up to him a bit. What, 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 um, what Beckett understands is that blind sycophancy doesn't go down well with Henry either. He, he wants someone whom he can actually respect, even though he wishes to still control him. He wants someone who he can respect for a certain amount of, of genuine independent advice. And Henry will actually, even when you give him advice he doesn't always want to hear, he will often respect you for giving you genuine advice. What he, doesn't, what he can't stand is what he sees as treachery 
or betrayal. But if you give him genuine advice from the heart, uh, uh, and um, this relationship, I think, with, with Beckett was much more complicated before he became uh, what he was still, still Chancellor. You see, I mean, really, all the early biographers um, skew this a bit because you know, they all say they were great. Well, they, I mean, they say they were great friends, but William Fitzstephen in particular says they were the closest of friends. They were like blood brothers. They worked together. They played together. They hunted together. They ate together. You know, Henry would come to eat at Beckett's, uh, in Beckett's hall. You know, he'd ride his, ho- ride his horse into the hall and he'd vault over the tables. You know, they would be, they'd slap each other over the back and they would be great chums and all the rest of that. And, and Fitzstephen's incredibly vivid about this, but Fitzstephen can't actually give us one... It's all generalities, actually. He can't give us one solid anecdote in which he actually tells us, chapter and verse, of how this friendship actually worked. He does give us one solid anecdote, and it's how the friendship didn't work. Uh, when um, they're riding out together one day, and Henry says to Beckett, you know, look, there's a beggar here, you know, wouldn't it be fine if, you know, he had a nice new cloak? And Beckett says, oh, well, it well behoves the king, you know, to think and say that. And Henry says, well, great, you know, it's your cloak, matey, that, you know, he's going to get. And he pulls it off him and there's a struggle. And the, actually it gets quite ugly And the because um, Beckett's got this brand new cloak, really expensive, and he likes it, lined with fur. And the guards run up and, and actually there's a, it looks as if there's a serious bit, bit of trouble. And, of course, what Henry is doing is he's, he's, he's actually using this as a sort of way of publicly humiliating and controlling Beckett and actually showing him who is the boss. I mean, these, there are techniques. There are t- Henry uses techniques of psychological control of the people around him. Uh, and although Beckett, as you see, said to Arnold, oh, you know, and, I mean, or, or, and to others, that, oh, Henry's a test of character and you have to stand up to him, and he, you know, he doesn't stand for blind sycophancy. Of course, Arnold of Lysia says, yeah, well, that's all very well, but... But a point will come when Henry will have one set of aims and you've got a set of other aims and they'll diametrically clash and then a right royal you know, struggle will emerge. And of course that's exactly what happens. I get, to this, I get to this in two stages. First I come to the friendship and I actually say, I cast doubt on how uh, sort of rosy this friendship was. I think that when Henry was young, Beckett of course is what, you know, roughly 12 years older. Uh, Henry comes, comes to this friendship, he's quite young, you know, he is he's incredibly, um, for his age, he is, you know, weathered and quite experienced, but he's still relatively inexperienced in the great scheme of things. I mean, and, and Beckett has, has, of course, has had to cope with being Archbishop Theobald's right-hand man and fixer, you know, during the whole time of the, uh, the worst bits of the anarchy of the, of the, of the, of the Civil War. Uh, and, um, uh, I mean, as a, young, as a young king, I think Henry was probably more flexible, he was um, more willing to be advised, you know, he hadn't, his aims weren't absolutely, you know, set in, set in, set in stone. Um, Beckett is able, to, uh, is able to steer him a bit. Uh, but of course, um, also I think Beckett is rather naive, and he is naive enough to think that this is a special relationship because Henry finds him useful. And I think Beckett thinks that actually they could really be friends. And, and William Fitzstephen, who's one of Beckett's clerks, you know, writes that version of the story. And of course, Fitzstephen also does it to make Henry look bad after they've quarrelled. I mean, there's an element of hagiography coming into this. You know, I mean, Fitzstephen plays up the. The, you know, the good relationship in order to, you know, throw mud at Henry when things have gone wrong and sort of blame him for, you know, for, for much of that. But I think when Henry got older, of course, he became much more independent in his thinking and he didn't need Beckett so much and he was going to subject him to the sort of psychological controls that he has for ev- everyone else. I mean, you can also point to, you can point to moments when there is a collision even before he become, before Beckett becomes Archbishop. I mean, in 1159, Henry get, raises an army and, you know, Beckett helps him and they go down t- essentially to recapture the city of Toulouse and restore it to the Duchy of Aquitaine, from which it has been detached. And while they're camped outside the walls of Toulouse, which is quite a difficult city to besiege, and then just as they're there, King Louis, who is Henry's feudal overlord, actually comes in into the city and sort of joins the defence. So, I mean, you know, it's very awkward for Henry to have to capture a city in which he's again going to capture his feudal overlord. That's yeah. actually incredibly difficult for him. Uh, and actually Beckett and Henry have a big row in, in the Council of War in front of the barons as to, as to basically, you know, are they going to actually attack the city or are they going to basically just leave it and go off and do something else? And 
Beckett wants to take the city and, um, you know, regardless of the fact that Louis is in it and, uh, and Henry decides that he doesn't want to, you know, be that militarily or politically exposed at that minute. So it wasn't necessarily all sweetness and light beforehand, you see. A lot of the thing is that we've given a lot of weight to... I, I, in a nutshell, I think we've given too much weight to the earliest biographies of Beckett, most of which were essentially written by hagiographers or people, you know, who were um, out to... They, they had an agenda. And we've given too little credit to actually rather objective, relatively, sources like the Letters of Arnold of Lisieux, which actually tell you a different story. See, the social gulf between Henry and Beckett is part of the problem. You know, once the, once the quarrel has started, I mean, Henry's always going to say, you know, actually, look, you know, I've raised you up from nothing. You're a guy I've raised up from nothing, and now you basically come and kick me in the teeth. And, then he, you know, he will say, even before the quarrel has reached its height, he's talking to Beckett and saying, are you not the son of one of my villains? And Beckett actually is rather proud of his middle-class ancestry. He defends his parentage and says, actually, that these are, you know, respectable people, you know, making a, a good living and they're of decent, they're of decent pedigree. And actually, you know, what does, what, what he once says, what do family trees matter? What do family trees, what does ancestry really amount, amount for in the great scheme of things? Uh, you know, I mean, the apostles were all humble men. You know, and yet they, they all you know, were chosen by Christ. So, so in a way, the relationship between Beckett and Henry was maybe never as strong as people think it was. So the breakdown wasn't quite as severe because it wasn't it wasn't this great relationship to break down. That, that, that it's central to my argument that this 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 wonderful friendship was not quite the wonderful friendship that it's made out to be by William Fitzstephen. And of course, many of the other early biographers copied from William Fitzstephen. So you don't, it's really quite hard to know how much corroboration there is there anyway in the first place. It's true that there are, that there are uh, I mean, uh, there's, uh, there's a, an, another biographer who wrote in old French called um, Guernes of um, uh, Ponce um, Saint-Maxence. I mean, and he, he also has this idea of a, of a good friendship, although he, had, I think, had used, used Fitzstephen. Uh, but I throw, like, this is one of the things that I do. I basically go about this in two stages. I cast doubt on the idea that this friendship had ever been quite the friendship that had previously been thought, and, and cite chapter and verse in the letters of Arnold of Lisieux. And then I go on to argue that the, the if you like, the, 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 the conversion of Beckett into a different type of figure um, was actually much slower and much more complex. Uh, and it was in fact in relation to, also to the sort of advice he was getting from people like Herbert of Bosham, who's another of his clerks and who is his divinity, his scripture tutor, and John of Salisbury, who is um, someone who is advising him as he's previously advised Archbishop Theobald, but of course is particularly pushing Beckett into, into reading, reading moral philosophy. And of course, moral philosophy means, means for John Saldry, means Cicero, or in a Christian context, St. Ambrose, and it means Seneca. And if you read St. Ambrose and you read Seneca, mm -hmm. then when, when you're faced with an over, overarching um, sovereign power that is essentially um, acting tyrannically, you will create the mindset that Beckett actually had. Uh, and once you've got not just simply um, a collision of personalities because, I mean, clearly there was some collision mm. of, per of personalities because Henry was absolutely furious that Beckett had resigned and Beckett was determined to stand his ground and, and in the early stages of the quarrel there is a bit of tit-for-tat uh, on, um, you know, relatively personal grounds and, and that's, there's no doubt about it but it it's very quickly is, is subsumed and, and transmuted by this, um, if you like, ideological polarisation. And in a way, I suppose that has to be the reason why Beckett, you know, for the next um, sort of four centuries, is seen as the, the sort of the iconic figure of uh, resistance to a tyrannical king. And I mean, you know, it's actually quite by chance, actually after I finished the book, this isn't in the book, um, I was reading Andy Wood's book on the rebellions of um, 1549 in Tudor England and discovering the fact that Kett's Rebellion began at Wyndham with a production of the, of the play of Sir Thomas Beckett, St Thomas Beckett. Oh. Uh, even though, of course, Beckett had been outlawed yeah. and banned and so on in 1538. I mean, Beckett is still seen, in the mid-16th century, Beckett's seen as the, you know, the, as the sort of the, the iconic figure of, of, res of, 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 of resistance to a you know, to a, um, a tyrannical, a tyrannical government. So is, do you think it's fair to describe Henry as a tyrant in his behaviour? 
Well, of course, that's the point of view. Uh, part of this book is also that, as well as reassessing Beckett, it reassesses Henry. And the full extent, I mean, Anne Duggan, who's a great expert on the 12th century and has, you know, written, you know, on Beckett and has, has, has edited, the, edited a magisterial edition of the two. We could, I couldn't have written this book without Anne Duggan's edition of the Letters of Beckett, which is um, um, a very detailed scholarly um, reorganisation and redating and, um, in many cases, retranslating of Beckett's letters as archbishop. Um, you can see from the letters, which lead you right into the heart of the controversy, that, that Henry not only is um, a, a regular oathbreaker. I mean, he's been an oathbreaker um, really from the early years of his reign. I mean, in one year, I think 1157, he does it three times. And, and um, there's a, a very well-known um, biographer, actually, of, um, of Henry um, called Warren. Professor Warren, who, um, of course, had pointed this out before. But, I mean, the Beckett correspondence leads you to see that Henry's twists and turns, faints, you know, lies. I mean, he's, he lies and cheats his way out of everything and, and, and always postpones, you know, he will... Weasel words are his stock in trade. Uh, and, uh, you know, he will promise the Pope this, that and the other, but, you know, try, then try not to deliver. He will, he will if Beckett um, reproaches him, he appeals to the Pope... Uh, you know, he's constantly playing every pa every trick of the power game in order to get get an advantage. And in fact, I mean, this is one of the reasons why the uh, the controversy lasts so long, uh, of course, and can't can't be settled. I mean, it, why does the final peace, the final reconciliation? I mean, essentially, they have essentially three shots, three big shots at it. Uh, and the third one is, is the one that, I mean, 1170, which is the one, July 1170, which uh, is the one that looks as if it has, the, you know, the best mileage in it. Uh, but, of course, it comes to grief because, really, Beckett isn't sure whether Henry can actually be trusted to keep his word. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence, in fact, that he can't be trusted to keep his word, that he promises he will restore... The, uh, the property and, and, and so on of the Church of Canterbury to, 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 to Beckett and the people whose property has been sequestrated because they're Beckett's supporters and they've been exiled onto the continent. Um, uh, I mean, he doesn't, um, he doesn't bring his courtiers into line to restore the, the property in, in, a, in a fair way. Of course, Beckett also, um, elated at the prospect of a settlement in 1170, takes the rather extreme position of saying that he wants every single yard of Canterbury ground restored to him before, you know, he'll basically go back, which is a bit foolish because he has to eat his words and go back anyway. Uh, and clearly too much has been taken. I doubt if Henry could even have afforded to restore every little bit. Of course, the courtiers have got quite a lot of it. Uh, but, I mean, is, I mean, Henry is certainly... Henry is a guy who um, I reinterpret because, I mean, although he's often seen... Really, Anglo-American lawyers in the 19th century looked at Henry II through rose-tinted spectacles and said that... He's somebody who reforms the legal system, introduces impartial justice and fairness and, you know, and jury trial and all the rest. I think this doesn't stand up. I mean, Henry, on a matter that affects him and his prerogative, expects to be chief prosecutor, judge and jury in his own court. There's a big dispute called the Battle Abbey case, while Beckett's Chancellor, a really um, brilliant um, medieval historian at um, the University of East Anglia called um, Nicholas Vincent. Uh, and, uh, you know, he essentially, his take on the Battle Abbey case is that much of the chronicle, which we believe to be genuine, even though the Abbey's chances were forged, much of the Abbey's chronicle um, is suspect, and in fact, chunks of it were forged, and were actually forged to create a context for the forged charters into which they were set. Uh, in other words, there are these forged charters, there is some sort of case, and there's no doubt that there was a case about these charters because there's a reconciliation in the document, but the fact of the matter is that this chronicle, you know, is, is, is suspect, and of course this is the chronicle in which Beckett is supposed to have given this, you know, this, this sort of speech, essentially taking Henry's side, if you like, on the church as chancellor. Of course, if you prove that the chronicle is, if you prove, and this is rather played into the hands of a revision of Beckett, because if you prove that the chronicle is forged, then you can't prove that Beckett was a hypocrite a anymore for um, essentially taking Henry's part on the, you know, on a tough line on the church while he was chancellor, uh, and then change when he's archbishop, because if the chronicle's suspect, we don't know.
anymore. I mean, it is true that Beckett, it is true. And actually, it's also, that makes a lot of sense because John of Salisbury doesn't mention the Battle Levy case. You know, you'd expect, you'd expect the people who normally tell you things, you know, in newsletters or give you information about the period to to, to mention this. And in fact, they they don't really. Um, uh, What we do know is that, what we do know is that Beckett um, collected, and scootage is is basically a tax for the war. Uh, And um, it's essentially commuting the obligation to provide knights by providing cash instead. Uh, and we know that Beckett um, collects scootage uh, for, for Henry, and we know that he collects it quite um, punitively against the church. Uh, and, I mean, John, John of Salisbury criticised him for that, but even John of Salisbury excused him to the point where he says that, well, you know, he had no choice, because this is basically Henry told him to do it, and he either had to do it or, you know, mm. he was finished. Um, so it's not an excuse, but it's an explanation. But, I mean, I, um, it's like rather like when I wrote about Mary Queen of Scots. I mean, I, I wrote about Mary Queen of Scots in a way that um, was very different to what had gone before, but I also wrote about Elizabeth in a way that had, was different to what had gone before. Once you start moving the furniture about, uh, when you actually look, go right back to the original sources and, and, and try and piece things together back from first principles, once you start moving the furniture, in fact, it can be that everything changes. So just as Elizabeth changed as well as Mary, in this Henry's changed as well as Beckett. And I, I see Beckett I see Beckett as having much more to contend with, with with Henry than anybody probably has previously thought. Although Anne Duggan has hinted at this in the past, I have to say. Anne Duggan is the historian more than far more than Barlow, Frank Barlow, who wrote about um, Beckett in what, 1986. And Duggan has hinted that Henry was essentially untrustworthy. And I absolutely agree with her. And I mean, I think the, the viewpoint that, I mean, you, you asked me the question, do I think Henry was a tyrant? I mean, that's the point of view. Beckett certainly thought he was a tyrant. And Beckett reckoned he knew a tyrant when he saw one because of his experiences in King Stephen's reign. Uh, because, I mean, it isn't Beckett who, this is another you know, huge misconception about Beckett. Um, he was not the first archbishop to, uh, to politicise the archbishopric. You know, after Lanfranc and Anselm and, 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 and so on. I mean, Anselm hadn't really politicised it because, although he'd been in clashes with both William Rufus and with Henry I, um, Anselm basically believed that the, the archbishop's duty was to be a pastor and not a politician. Whereas Archbishop Theobald, during the anarchy of Stephen's reign, clearly becomes a politician. Uh, and Archbishop Theobald clearly is the kingmaker in 1154. He's the guy that basically... Um, brokers, with Beckett as his right-hand man and fixer, brokers this deal whereby uh, Stephen accepts that he can remain king during his lifetime, but that the succession will go to Henry of Anjou and not to his own son, well, actually Eustace dies, but to his younger son, uh, William, that basically that he will adopt, as it were in inverted commas, he will adopt Henry of Anjou as his heir. And Theobald brokers that compromise. And then, of course, Theobald uh, gets Beckett made Chancellor. It's the, Beckett becomes Chancellor not because Henry necessarily wants to put him or knows that much about mm-hmm. him, but because Theobald talks him into it. Because Theobald wants a guy there who will essentially protect the interests of the church under yeah. the new king to enable Theobald to retire from being, if you like, the political archbishop to being more of the pastoral archbishop in his old age. And he'll have, if you like, he'll have a friend and protector at court who will ensure that he can actually stay a pastor and not actually have to get involved in politics again. But, of course, the world has changed. The archbishopric has become... I mean, Archbishop Theobald, I mean, golly, Archbishop Theobald is the archbishop who's chased, you know, along the Thames, basically, when he's fleeing um, fleeing from an angry Stephen. He's chased by 12 angry knights with swords, you know, drawn, basically trying to assassinate him. It's perfectly... It would be perfectly understandable how, at the end of Stephen's raid, if Theobald had actually been... I mean, according to the Beck Abbey Chronicle, or a bit in, in, inserted into it, according to, um, according to this to a life of Theobald. There's a life of Theobald that's interpolated into the Beckabbey Chronicle. According to this, um, you know, Stephen said, you know, well, I no longer, I'm not going to, I'm not going to kill Theobald, but I don't really care if anybody else does it. Uh, you know, and, um, which is, you know, n- not exactly comparable with what Henry II's, you know, said at the uh, It's not quite comparable, but nonetheless, I mean, Theobald is chased by 12 angry knights and, and, you, know, you 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 can't really argue with um, you know with with this. I mean, the world has changed, and 
See, in, uh, in Lanfranc and El Anselm's time, church and state worked together and the king worked with the archbishop and it was like a team. But everything that had happened with the aesthetic reform movement and the lay investiture uh, contest and you know, the, the rise of the um, of um, the power of the papacy and um, canon law and um, the sort of the sort of more exclusive positions that were taken by the church over jurisdiction, it just wasn't going to work like that anymore. And 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 Henry, I mean, when Henry the second claims to be simply in enforcing the customs of his grandfather, you know, Henry the First. It's certainly true that he wants to go to back that, that, that sort of era. Uh, of course, it, it, it can't be done, but, I mean, he's also thoroughly meant... There's a lot of weasel words in this. I mean, many of the things that are, are so-called... He defines or he demands as the so-called ancestral customs at, at, at Clarendon. Uh, I mean, some of them are ancestral customs, and, and quite a few of them aren't. Uh, or it's that every, or it's the most exceptional, extreme example of every um, topic that's chosen, and, made, and, and Henry tries to have it made the norm. I mean, it's a bit like the way that Archbishop Lord redefined the Church of England in the early 17th century. You know, it, he, he redefined it as something that it actually you know, hadn't been before. Uh, and uh, it's this sort of game that Henry's trying to play. And, and, and Beckett, and Beckett knows that if someone doesn't take a stand. You know the church's cause will be lost by, by 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 default, and I mean Henry's not just doing it. See the other thing you see is that Henry's not just doing this in England to Becket; he's also trying to do it on the continent. Someone like you know um, John of Canterbury, who becomes um, who's also been one of Theobald's top, who becomes Bishop of Poitiers. I mean he notices this and points his letters point point this out. Henry's acting in ways that it's, it would be perfectly legitimate at the time to to, to, to denounce as tyrannical. In the same way that Henry VIII was doing things at the time of the break with Rome and afterwards that, 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 that can legitimately be denounced as t tyrannical. Um, but of course, um, seeing tyranny is also a point of view. That one man's strong government is another man's or another woman's tyranny. Uh, and of course, it's the, way that, it's the way that people engage with the supreme power and the attitudes that they have. That, that colour this, that colour this question. But if you're reading the books that Becky was reading, which are yeah. the same books that Thomas More was reading, which is basically, you know, the, if you like, Cicero, Strokes and Ambrose, Seneca, you are going to see that sort of ruler as a tyrant. Do you think Henry intended to have Beckett killed? I don't think there's... I mean, I explain this in my book. I mean, I don't actually think there's a huge amount of doubt about what Henry wanted. Henry sent his own um, chaps... Um, uh, Mandeville, Earl of Essex and um, Richard de Humes. Uh, he sends them over to basically take Beckett and basically lock him up. The equivalent of house arrest or a dungeon or something like that. But, but, I, but it was not in Henry's interest to have Beckett killed. Um, and by the way, um, you know, of course, I mean, I, I think this was perhaps um, already known, but I was able to show where the phrase came from. I mean, Henry never said, who will rid me of this turbulent priest, but nor did George Lord Littleton um, in his um, History of Henry II. Yeah. I mean, he did say it, but he wasn't the first to say it. It was first um, electronic searching aids enabled me to find out you know, fairly quickly that a guy called Thomas Mortimer, about three years before, in a, in a book called A New History of England, in two volumes, had, had, had sort of made up this quote who will rid me of this turbulent priest. Now, what, what um, there are actually three or four different versions of what Henry is supposed to have said, but in a nutshell, he, he said pretty much what he'd said at Chinon in a similar sort of rage in um, 1166, which is what, four years before. Basically, who are all these useless drones, courtiers, who clutter up my court, none of whom can help me to basically to get even with one single priest. Uh, and actually, Nicholas, the, you know, the, the wonderful Nicholas Vincent, who wrote an article on the, um, you know, who were these four knights and mm. what happened to them um, not so long ago, you know, has pointed out that these are essentially, um, if you like, they're, 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 they are knights at Henry's court. Three of them have probably been Beckett's knights in the past when he was Chancellor. But they've gone over to Henry's service. They're, they're relatively unknown at Henry's court. They're on the fringes of intimacy with the king. They make it their business to try and do Henry's business. And, they, and, and, and reap the rewards, and they go off having misunderstood what Henry has said, and they go off and they actually go off on their own to, um, to, to, ki to kill Beckett, thinking that this is what Henry actually wants. Uh, I mean, what Henry... Henry's the guy who had these rages. Uh, he would go off into it. He would... Um, there's one wonderful occasion where he's angry with Richard de Humes, um, who's um, constable of Normandy and who was um, uh, basically... Um, enraged him and he he just sort of goes ballistic i mean he tears off his 
silk clothes and throws them. Well, he's he, he tears off his clothes and throws them on the floor. His clothes aren't silk, but he pulls down the silk balance off his off his off his bed. You know, he rolls around on the floor and finishes up eating straw. It's all described in um, correspondence. He can get into these credible rage, and I think those his courtiers who knew him well knew that you didn't take any notice of him at that moment. And you didn't basically, you know, one of his secretaries said, you know, he'll be furious in the morning, he'll be absolutely fine with you in the afternoon. You just had to ignore these rages and then see what he was like a couple of hours later. What you didn't do was when he sounded off about something, you didn't just rush off to do whatever he'd said because he'd think better of it a, a bit later. So in a way, I mean, it was, I think it's Nicholas Vincent and, and he's absolutely right and, and I say the same. It was just bad luck that Henry had this particular tantrum about Beckett at this minute when, in the presence of people who, who, who overheard this and then basically went off and um, decided that they would kill him. Because what Henry wanted, he certainly wanted Beckett dealt with. Everybody asked me, you know, did Mary, Queen of Scots, want Darnley dead? And the answer is no, I do think she didn't want him dead and there's no, absolutely no evidence that she was involved in planning his murder and certainly not in a gunpowder plot at Kirk, Kirker Field. But she certainly wanted him locked up. I mean, Darnley had become a dangerous nuisance. Yeah. She wanted him locked up, and her, and and and, and it, it's it's very clear to me that the idea that that that, that Darnley would be essentially put under house arrest and, and kept there for a very long time uh, at Craig Miller Castle was very much what she had in mind. Well, so with this, would would Henry have left um, Beckett in a dungeon to die? Possibly, but you certainly wouldn't have killed him. Certainly wouldn't have had his yeah. men killing him. I mean, he, after all, Henry locks his wife up, doesn't he? I mean, at Salt, no, Salisbury, um, you know, for the best part of ten, ten years. I don't know if Aquitaine, you know, once she joins this revolt of of um, Prince Henry, uh, the younger, the younger, the younger King Henry. Um, although I think that um, others would know better than I, but I think her confinement was probably rather luxurious at Salisbury. What was Henry's reaction then to the death of Becket, if if this wasn't what he'd intended? Initially, he just tries to brazen it out. He thinks he can get away with it, uh, at least if he um, disclaims, you know, responsibility for it, and um, you know, says, "Well, I mean, I didn't really call for this." But and he th and also if he can get his messengers to the Pope first. Uh, but of course, he doesn't. Um, Alexander Llewellyn, who was um, who was sent with Herbert of Bosham to Paris in 1170, but before, essentially, the, the assassination happened. Alexander Llewellyn gets there at first, but, but, but Henry thinks he can brazen it out, but it's too much to brazen out. It is too much to brazen out. Also, he's not sorry. He doesn't even express sorrow mm. about it initially, and then, of course, accepting it. I mean, he, there's a sort of token, there's a token. An arm of these years says, oh, there's, you know, he's in sackcloth and ashes, and, you know, he'd sort of disappeared for 30 days, or, you know, whatever it is, and he won't come out. Those, I mean, it's basically, I mean, he was shocked at this news because he knew it spelt trouble. But after that, he was determined to brazen it out, but he couldn't brazen it out. He had to. But even then, it, was, it took a while to, even when he had to do penance, I mean, it took, took a long time for the Pope's um, uh, envoys to actually, even to get Henry to come and um, sort of sort things out, you know, so that there could be this reconciliation with the Church of Avranches, because Henry goes off on a campaign in Ireland, doesn't come back for a bit, mm. uh, keeps them all waiting. But eventually, he has to reconcile himself to the Church, and he has to. Um, it's a sort of, I wouldn't say it's a token penance, because he has to seal a rather stiff um, charter of reconciliation, mm. which is sent out all over, copies of which are sent out all over Europe, and many of the clauses of which Henry tried to sort of airbrush out of history. So he is, but he's not, um, he doesn't, he doesn't um, wear penitential clothes, and he doesn't, um, you know, go through the motions he doesn't go through the, cere the ceremonial aspects of being a penitent. He does as little as possible to actually get himself reconciled to the Jews. But of course, later, of course, later, he has to do a se he chooses to do a second penance at Canterbury mm. because once because once um, there's a revolt against him, you know, really across his empire, involving his wife, um, his eldest son, and his and his and his, and his younger sons. I mean, once there is a revolt against him. Um, which um, he's finding it difficult to deal with. He needs some sort of you know, sort of charismatic ammunition, uh, and for that, you know, a pilgrimage, say, to the shrine of Edward the Confessor won't do. If he can't beat Becket, he has to join him. So he goes to the Becket shrine, and he actually he actually um, does a second penance. And that one, he does wear penitential clothes. He does walk as a penitent, 
from the you know the gates of the city at Canterbury to, to the cathedral and um, goes down to the um, to the crypt to the tomb and where it was then the first tomb was in the crypt. He goes down into the crypt and and he puts his you know he kneels before the shrine and puts his there were, there were holes for your head to put your head through so you could um, basically kneel and, and and put your head close to the to the martyr's tomb. And uh, and he does that, and sure enough, for Henry, you know, he, it works that miracles at the shrine of Thomas Becket actually happen because the very next morning the King of Scots is defeated in battle. He was one of the rebels, and it, so it really looks as if it works for Henry. And after that, Henry goes back. Whenever Henry, uh, there's just one 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 year when the cathedral's closed to visitors because of rebuilding work that he can't go back. But every time he crosses the Channel, he goes and actually goes to Canterbury on the way back. Henry VIII did the same at the time of the Field of Cloth of Gold. He took Catherine of Aragon and Charles V down to um, Canterbury and showed them round the cathedral on, on, just on the eve of going over to the Field of Cloth of Gold in, in, in 1520. And when Henry comes back, he also goes back to Canterbury, to the, to the shrine. So, And then later, I mean, he, I mean, Louis VII comes, to, France comes to the shrine. I mean, then the thing just takes off. I mean, it becomes a... I mean, I mean it's the most important shrine in England, I mean, the medieval pilgrimage site in England. I mean, it inspires Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and, you know, in the 20th century, it inspired T.S. Eliot's murder in the cathedral. Why do you think the Becket cult grew so quickly? Well, the story was a particularly gruesome one. I mean, mm. the assassination story is a bit... I mean, and, um, of course, John of Salisbury and, um, you know, the early biographers, um, the early hagiographers, really, they are. I mean, they, they told the story well. I mean, Becket's made as a saint by the Pope incredibly fast, you know, within three years. In 1173, mm-hmm. he's, made a, he's made a saint. The decree is issued at Ash Wednesday by Alexander III, the Pope. Um, and, of course, the, um, you know, there was, just, there was just a large amount of evidence that, that um, the blood of Thomas Beckett... I mean, I mean, miracles supposedly happened, you know, within hours of the murder, when the, the blood was, you know, beginning to coagulate. Uh, and of course, then it was collected by the monks, and it was watered down. And there was this thing called the Water of Canterbury, which they sold at the shrine, you know, sort of as souvenirs. But I mean, there's a, just a huge amount of evidence that, you know, people seem to think it worked. And um, it also appealed to all social classes. It appealed to not just you know the, the affluent and the rich, but it also appealed to the you know the poor and women and priests and so on. Uh, and um, you know, to women in childbirth, and um, you know, people would go for all sorts of things to just basically find out things. You know, you know where lost servants were, where where stolen rings were. You know, anything like this. You know, how to how to cure sick horses, or you know, people would go and find out things that you know the and and they, of course they kept um, book of miracles. There were you know the books of miracles which were kept recording all of this. Uh, and it um, it just took off. I suspect also that Canterbury it's in a it's in an interesting position. I mean it's you know it's on the way to Dover, the old Dover. I mean you you go to essentially you're 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 at Canterbury on the old Dover Road, really going into to, to the continent. So there's a regular traffic of people, isn't there, between Europe and and London. Uh, and if you're going to if you're going to Oxford or Cambridge or anywhere in the country, you're going to go up that road. And it's a I suppose it's a good place to sort of stop off and, um, and and pray for a safe crossing across the channel. But basically, the, the, the shrine just took off because of the miracles. And, and so coming forward to the present day, why do you think we're still so fascinated by Thomas Beckett? We're still fascinated about Beckett because he's, he's somebody who's incredibly, you know, you might not like him, but he was somebody at the time who was incredibly charismatic, who could, who could walk into a room and people would notice that he had come in, who was incredibly controversial in his own lifetime, and he's divided opinion ever since. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. 
That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. That was John Guy. His biography of Thomas Beckett has recently been published by Viking. Look out for a review of the book in BBC History Magazine's June issue. Lawrence Rees, former head of history at the BBC and an expert on the Second World War, has produced a website on that war featuring interviews with historians and veterans from the conflict. The site, www.history.com, was subscription only up until last month when the content was made free. We've taken one of the interviews from the site for you to have a listen to. It's the story of a British mariner. On 12 July 1942, Brian Clark's ship was sunk by a U-boat. He and his comrades then faced an arduous journey in a lifeboat to try and save themselves. Lawrence Rees introduces the piece. Brian Clark joined the Merchant Navy as a radio officer when he was just 18 years old in 1941. The following year, he was serving on board a merchant ship called the Sithonia, en route across the Atlantic to South America with a cargo of coal. When one night, disaster struck. When I was lying in my bunk asleep, waiting for the quartermaster to call me for my midnight watch, at half past ten, there was an almighty explosion, which is quite a traumatic business, an explosion. I don't know how close you've ever been to one, but it doesn't sort of stop at attacking your ears. You become the epicentre of the noise. It's very odd. Your whole body is sort of suddenly enveloped in noise and you become part of the noise. However, the torpedo, and I knew instantly what it was, even though I was fast asleep, it threw me out of my bunk. I was in the top bunk, so this was about six feet above the deck. And it threw me out of my bunk and onto the floor of the cabin, which, by the time I got there, amazingly in all this, the speed of it is quite stunning. By the time I hit the floor, was already a few inches deep in water. Brian managed to get out of his cabin, up onto the deck and into a lifeboat. Then the old Sithonia, she slipped down and to the bottom. You know, she suddenly gave up the ghost and went down. And it's all a bit sad, really, because she's your home. Not much of a home, it's true, but all your possessions and things are on it. So that's a bit of a bad moment. One other lifeboat had been launched with them, and the sailors in both boats now started to discuss just what they should do next. The atmosphere was okay then, because we were new to it and we realised that we were only 350 miles from the Canary Islands anyway, which is not a terribly long journey. And so we were kind of buoyed up, full of hope, because uh, A, we were uninjured, B, we survived, and C, we were in a lifeboat. Although they look, I have to say, lifeboats look very tiny compared with the Atlantic Ocean, which is absolutely massive. And then, in the middle of our deliberations, came a big shout across the water on a megaphone in perfect English. What ship are you? And it was the U-boat commander. And we said, the Sithonia. And he said, is your captain aboard? Well, the captain was aboard. He was in our boat. But we said, no, he went down with the ship, because they used to take senior officers and interrogate them. Then the chief officer, he was a bit worried that we were going to be machine-gunned by the U-boat's commander, so he was saying, don't shoot us, don't shoot us. And I must say, I had more faith in human nature than he had. I couldn't see anybody turning machine-guns on people in a lifeboat somehow. Anyway, he said, have you any injured men? And we said, no. All this is in splendid English. I often wonder how many British submariners could have addressed a German crew in German. Not so many, I suspect. 
However, he was very good, most concerned. Have you any injured men? No. Do you know where you are? Yes. Your position is this, and he gave us our position, which we knew. And he said, did you get a distress signal away? And we said, no, we didn't. The radio was damaged. And he said, right, give me your call sign and I'll send a distress message for you. Now, whether he ever did or not, I honestly don't know. But he said he would. And then he said, are you all right for cigarettes, blankets? That was the next question. We said, well, we don't really need blankets. We're south of the Canary Islands, you know, don't need blankets. And so he said, are you all right for cigarettes? So we said, no. <laughs> so as good as gold, he went down his conning tower and came back a moment or two later and said, I'm terribly sorry, but we're short of cigarettes as well. So we didn't get any cigarettes from him, but his intentions were good. So with a shout of bon voyage, he slid off into the darkness. We rationed the water because there was not a lot of water. Some of the barrels had been broached. The chocolate was missing, or some of the chocolate was missing, and the food we had in the boat was pemmican, which is a kind of meat concentrate paste, frightful stuff. And we had ship's biscuits, and we also had Horlicks tablets and some chocolate. So that was our diet. And so after about the fourth day or the fifth day, we woke up one morning, daybreak, to see that the other boat was no longer there. So that was a bit of a blow, you know. It sort of knocks your morale a bit because you don't know whether it's gone down in the night, sunk in the night, or been picked up or whatever. Anyway, so that was that. So we were on our own. And it becomes a bit more lonely, if you will. So we kept on sailing and we could see that the water was going down fast. So we were really keeping our rations low. Because the funny thing is, if you don't have anything to drink, you don't make much saliva. And when you don't have any saliva, you don't eat anything. At that time, we were drinking probably a couple of tablespoonfuls at daybreak, a couple of tablespoonfuls at midday, and a couple of tablespoonfuls at sunset. But it was only at that stage that we realized, after we'd been at sea about seven days, we realized that we had missed the Canary Islands. Somehow, we'd made a mess of it navigationally, and we'd missed them. Unfortunately, you'd think you were literally in the same boat together, but it isn't like that. Human nature is rather horrid, really, and the atmosphere was pretty grim. We had a number of different nationalities in the boat, and one nationality would say that another nationality was getting more than their whack of water, and, you know, and so on. So the atmosphere was not good. And there were lots of incidents where people would get their knives out and were going to slit somebody else's throat and so on and so on. And you were in a confined space. You're suddenly deprived of smoking. And if you've ever given up smoking, you know, you feel bad tempered. So the atmosphere was not good. We were not eating, we were not drinking, and we were not getting anywhere, which was worse. And then the captain said, Rather than start looking around for the Canary Islands, which would have been quite a difficult job, really, he said, we really ought to make travel east until we got to Africa. So this caused a lot of recrimination within the boat. Some people said, well, we haven't got enough water to get to Africa, you know. It's going to be another 500 miles or something. However, that was what we finally decided to do. We took a vote on it, and we decided that if we kept going east... Africa was so big that you can't really miss it very well, even us. And so we carried on going east, and then we realised that we hadn't got enough water for everybody. And I can remember sitting in the stern of the boat thinking, now, we're not all going to make it. And you wonder if it's going to be him, or him, or him. And so we had to cut the ration, the water ration, down from two tablespoonfuls to one tablespoonful, which is very, very little water if you stop to think about it, especially in that part of the world. The sun beats down mercilessly during the day and it's staggeringly hot, no shade. And then at night time, as soon as the sun goes down, it's bitterly, bitterly cold, very cold indeed. So you begin to get into a bit of a state 
And the first incident, I suppose, was one of the firemen, a Febo, and he suddenly said, I'm going to swim ashore, I'm too young to die. So he jumped over the side and started swimming. Well, I, I mean, this is nonsense, really. So I said to the skipper, aren't we going to pick him up, sir? And he said, certainly not. He said, if that man is mad enough to think he can swim ashore, he's mad. And he said, we haven't got room in this boat for mad people. Besides, he said, it's one less mouth for water. And of course, he was absolutely correct, I've since thought. So poor old Ephibo, we watched him swim away to his death. Some of the chaps started filling their Horlicks tin, or whatever they had, mug or something, with salt water, seawater. And I can remember saying to one guy who was from Bolton, I said, what are you doing that for? He said, I'm going to drink it. He said, I'm going to leave it out in the sun and the sun will extract all the impurities from it and it will become fresh. And I didn't believe that. So he started to drink salt water, seawater, and some of the others followed suit. And I must say that it made a big difference to them. They became feverish and would flop about in a frenzy in the bottom of the boat, which was always a wash anyway. There was always a foot of water in it. On about the 19th day, we spotted the land. So this was very cheering. But it took us another two days to get there. We were rowing like mad, although we were weak at this stage. And where we'd had one man on an oar in the beginning, we now had to have two men because we weren't strong enough to manage the oars. We did make it to land, and in the Atlantic, even in calm weather, the breakers are pretty huge, and these breakers flung us up onto the beach and crashed our boat, smashed it to smithereens, and it threw us up onto the beach. And the worst thing of that day was that, well, there were two worst things, really. One was that one of the guys had died the day we got there, and the other thing was that our water barrel was also shattered. To see our nice fresh water going into the sand was a bit of a blow. So we dragged the poor chap who died. He was a young man, my age indeed, a fireman from Liverpool. And we dragged him up above the water line and dug him a shallow grave in the sand. And as far as I know, he's still there. Then we looked around us and we landed of all places in the Sahara Desert. So we were sitting there, wondering what we were going to do. Then Brian and his shipmates noticed a group of tribesmen staring at them. We made them understand that we wanted water, so they said yes. So they sent four men on two camels out into the desert, to an oasis, presumably, to get water. And they were away forever, and we were pretty desperate by then. However, they did come back, and they had goatskins absolutely bulging with water, which was lovely. So we sort of ran forward and held out our mugs and tins and things to get it, and they wouldn't give it to us. But they wanted an exchange, they wanted to barter, and so all sorts of daft things changed hands. You know, pound notes. I mean, what good is a pound note in the Sahara Desert? And I'd got an old greatcoat there with brass buttons on. So I cut a brass button off and I got water for a brass button. And somebody else got something for a watch or a belt buckle. And one chap even traded his false teeth. But anyway, there we are. So we lived with these people. They became a little more understanding as we stayed with them. They were a fishing community of about 80 people, men, women and children. And they had two or three tents and we slept outside and we helped them a bit with the fishing. They fished for a man who would come down the coast who had a fish canning factory up in a place called Rio de Oro because we had landed in Mauritania. Brian and his comrades were subsequently taken up the coast to Dhaka and from there, after a brief period of captivity at the hands of the Vichy French, managed to return to Britain. Brian landed back at Gurukh in Scotland in January 1943 but his view of human nature had been forever changed by his experience, and he certainly didn't have feelings of affection for the men he'd shared his terrible ordeal with. I hope I never see any of those men again, and I'm sure they feel the same about me. They wouldn't want to know me. 
which is a shame really when you think as I say that most people are nice but I suspect that this niceness is just a very thin veneer until you get down to the nitty-gritty. So those were the words of Brian Clark, and they were voiced by Michael Burrell. You can hear more of this material at www.history.com, and they'll also find interviews there with noted historians such as Anthony Beaver, Adam Toos, Richard Evans, and Sir Ian Kershaw. Now just time for a quick reminder that tickets are still available for the third in our BBC History magazine Tower of London lecture series. This talk brings together two historians to discuss the reigns of the two Elizabeths, the Tudor Elizabeth I and the current Elizabeth II. Anna Whitelock and Kate Williams will be considering their lives and queenships. The event takes place on the 14th of June. Go to historyextra.com forward slash tower lecture for more information. That's all for this episode. We'll return next week when we'll be considering Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812 and talking about the Bamiyan Buddhas. In the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. Plus, don't forget you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and Apple Newsstand, respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.